With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Dan. Welcome to our Wednesday edition of the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. Before we get started, I've got to tell you all about Football Insider. It's our subscription service. Uh, it starts with texts from me, Mary Kay, Scott, and Ellis throughout the day. News, analysis, uh, things we think, things we've heard, whatever it is. Sometimes uh, some snippets of interviews if we're working on, on longer features, things like that. Uh, you get that texted directly to you. We also do a pregame Q&A with our texters. Uh, we invite our texters onto our podcast via postgame Zoom exclusively for them. Uh, and also we do a PixPod every Friday and we have a, a texter on as well. But it's not just that. You also get a daily newsletter that comes straight to your inbox it's got exclusive content that does not show up anywhere on cleveland.com. It's just for our subscribers. And if you sign up for Football Insider, you get access to our stories on cleveland.com slash browns that are exclusive to Football Insider subscribers. So check it out. Go to cleveland.com slash browns. Click on the blue banner at the top of the page. Get all the details. Get signed up. Here's our pod. Hey everybody, welcome to our Wednesday edition of the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. I'm Dan Lobby, joined by Mary Kay Cabot. Mary Kay, how are you? I'm doing great, Dan. How are you doing? Doing well, and also Scott Patsko joining us. Scott, how are you? I'm doing good. Is, is it weird just having me on here one day a week? Have you gotten used to it yet? You know, we're like, <laughs> a little. I feel like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm doing the other podcast a couple of times, and I'm, I'm never really sure what's going on over here. It's a, it, it is a little strange. We got to get you on more. We need you got to get in on this picks pod. I'm telling you, I'm going to I'm going to get you on there some Friday picking games. My, my gift is kind of tricky. You know, it, it, sometimes <laughs> it's not so it's really the minutia of the game that I'm good at. It's not so much the final scores. <laughs> well, that other pod actually did go up on Tuesday afternoon, I believe it was. So um, you talked about Olivier Vernon and Ellis talked about Kevin Stefanski, right? Got to watch the tape. Yep. Yeah, we're diving into both those guys and uh, yeah, check it out because I think um, they're both, both conversations kind of lean forward into this uh, Steelers game and, and what uh, you might expect from, from the Browns. So. All right, sounds good. And we're going to get into uh, some incidents that led up to the Steelers game. Now in the second half of the pod after the break, you'll also hear from Terry Pluto. So stick around uh, for that. I talked to him a little earlier on Tuesday. All right, I thought since we're officially into Steelers week now, it is Wednesday morning, and then on the NFL calendar, that's kind of how it works. Wednesday is the day we all turn our attention towards the upcoming game, and I thought let's take a moment to look back uh, to this Miles Garrett-Mason-Rudolph incident. I do want to ask you guys this. Um, it feels like it was so long ago. So much has happened, and we're going to get into a lot of the stuff that has happened as we talk through this, but just initially, obviously this is a big piece of this week 
if you kind of travel back in time though a little bit, does it feel as big as you thought maybe it would have, you know, back when it all happened? And of course, then the Browns played Pittsburgh a couple weeks later, or do you feel like it's faded just a little bit? I guess to me, and maybe it's just because we're not into the week yet and things are so different. I do feel like it's faded just a little bit in my mind. Yeah, I would have to say, I, I think it's faded. Uh, a year has gone by uh, almost. And then also Mason Rudolph is not going to be the quarterback for this game. And I think that takes a lot of the sting, the edge away from it, since it's not going to be Miles and Mason the way that it was uh, in that fateful November game. So that's part of it. And then the other thing is um, that the Browns uh, four and one record and Miles' performance have overshadowed anything that happened last year. Now, I think if Miles were struggling, if the Browns were struggling, uh, you know, then we might look at this and say, oh, he hasn't been the same since then. He's a different player, but, and he is a different player, but in a good way. So I would have to say, yes, I think the edge is a little bit off of the incident. Yeah, I think you're right about Miles' season so far, kind of changing the storyline a little bit. Uh, and I think the fact that it happened here in Cleveland and it was something that a Browns player did, you know, you're going to a, a game this week where it's in Pittsburgh. If, if, say, it had been reversed and now the Steelers were coming back to Cleveland and it had been, you know, Bud Dupree who hit Baker over the head or something, I think it would be a different scenario, but uh, it's just the, the way it happened. It, you know, it happened at home and, and now everything's kind of going off to Pittsburgh. And as we saw in the second game last year, Pittsburgh, it, it wasn't as much of a big thing in Pittsburgh when the Browns ended up playing them a couple weeks later as maybe we, we'd anticipated. So um, maybe even, you know, before the season ended, it kind of, kind of changed a bit. Yeah, you know, it's weird, too. There's not going to be a ton of fans there. I, I think the Steelers have fans uh, at their games now, but it's still, you know, it's not going to be like 60,000 fans booing Miles Garrett as he comes out of the tunnel. All right, let's go back to that night. We were all there. And one of the things that kind of stands out to me is earlier this season, it was actually before the Cowboys game. I was doing our pregame uh, Q&A with our Football Insider subscribers, and somebody asked, when's the last time the Browns won three games in a row? And I went back and I looked and the last time they won three games in a row before that Dallas game was last season. And that Pittsburgh game was a part of it. And I, I kind of remember that, but it also still felt strange because I guess the, the takeaway that I have from that game is just, it didn't feel like a win at all. It, it just standing outside the locker room after we went into the locker room, watching guys leave. I mean, we were standing in that hallway forever waiting for the locker room to open guys were walking out. There were no smiles. There was no, there was no joy in anyone's faces. It was the biggest Browns win in forever. And, and there was no happiness or joy or anything like that. Um, it was just such a strange feeling. It, it was this huge Thursday night win and it just felt like the Browns lost. Well, I think uh, part of the reason is, I mean, you just knew that this was really bad. None of us had ever seen anything like this happen before on a football field where a helmet was used as a weapon, where other players got involved. Uh, you know, it, it was a, just a horrific scene, really. And so I think we all knew at that time that the, the consequences were going to be grave for Miles and for the teams, and that it was just basically kind of a mess. And it, so it did have a sort of, a, a, you know, just a cryptic feel to it where you knew that Miles was probably going to get suspended. I thought that he would be done for the rest of the season after seeing that. And ultimately he was. Uh, so yeah, it, um, it didn't feel like a victory. It felt like sort of an ending to something. 
and you know, he was off to a pretty good start. He had 10 sacks in 10 games, and you know he was still on track for his uh, goal to win NFL Defensive Player of the Year, although he would have had a long way to go. He would have had to make the kinds of plays he's making this year a lot in the final six games. Uh, but it just it just had a very somber, somber feel to it because you knew uh, that this was going to have a, a pretty serious ending. I think playing into the weirdness of the, the aftermath was the fact that it happened right at the end of the game. I think there were, after that play, they had the Pittsburgh ran another play and then Garrett Gilbert came out and kneeled down and that was it. So it was like right at the end and we're all up in the press box typing away uh, <laughs> and quickly changing a lot of what we were writing because this happened. So it, it was like everybody was kind of processing it at the same time. And like you said, down in the tunnel and waiting and going into the locker room afterwards. And it was just so quiet and uh, maybe not as many players available at their locker as, as you usually see. And although Miles was, <clears throat> but I think that played a lot into it. The fact that it just happened right at the end and, and it was like, you know, the, the Browns just won and, and they've won two straight and, they're trying to climb out of this hole from the first half of the season. And just, how does, how does this all fit in there? It just seemed like, seemed like a loss. Yeah. And it, like, like you said, it, it did pretty much clear out. I think we got miles. I think Odell Beckham was still around to, to talk after the game. Um, so let's talk about the people that were involved and let, let's just dig into miles Garrett here because for him, uh, six weeks off missed, you know, an indefinite suspension, missed six games was finally reinstated pretty early in the off season, uh, you know, made the water boys trip to Tanzania, signed a huge contract extension. You know, I mean, so much has changed for miles Garrett since then. Again, I, I think that's sort of why it feels, I don't want to say a blip on the radar, but it feels so far away because he's so different. And the thing to me that I've noticed this season, and maybe this is because we aren't around as often and, and we don't see quite as much, but just in our interactions with miles, he just feels very comfortable now. He feels like he's figured out who he is, what kind of leader he wants to be. He's worked really hard to put that moment behind him and, and kind of drive home the fact that it was one really bad moment and it shouldn't define him. And he just seems like a different player on the field, but also a different kind of more vocal leadership or leader type player off the field as well. Well, I had an opportunity um, and it was a unique opportunity to talk one-on-one -on -one about all of this stuff with Miles in September. And he was actually very forthcoming. And what I discovered during that interview is that he is a completely different person. This was a turning point in his life and a major one. He contemplated quitting football while he was out on that six game suspension. While he was thinking about never playing again, he realized that he did not need the game and that he would be fine without it. And therefore I think he comes back with a renewed vigor and a renewed appreciation knowing that it could have been completely taken away from him. So he is grateful to have it, but also knowing that he can walk away and that he isn't just football. And that's not what he is all about. So uh, I do think that he realized that it doesn't define him, that it won't ruin him. He said he's not one to crumble uh, and you know, to, to crawl in a, in a corner and hide and, and let this take him down. He was raised by uh, you know, very great parents who instilled all kinds of wonderful values in him. Uh, I think it made him want to give back more to the world, and we've seen him do that. Uh, we've seen him be uh, very active in the social justice arena. Uh, one of the biggest things that I've seen in Miles is that he's gotten a lot closer to his teammates. He is a leader on that football team, and I, I think that's just really helping him out there a lot. 
he used to be kind of marching to his own drummer off to uh, off on his own doing different things the way i put it in the story was that he, like he was off you know kind of photographing waterfalls and writing poetry and things like that I mean, he wasn't one of the guys all the time he kind of was doing his own thing now he's really engaged he is truly a vocal leader he's a, a friend a teammate he cherishes these moments and this opportunity and he i think made a vow and he did he, he vocalized that he made a vow that he was basically going to kind of put the defense on his back and set the tone and lead his at least his side of the ball uh, to that way high next level that they want to go. And I think we should all realize that if he's not Miles Garrett, maybe he doesn't overcome this. You know, there is an overwhelming majority of players in this league who, if they had done that, you know, Port Augustine is probably cut and doesn't, you know, he's no longer a member of the team. Anyway, Chad Thomas does that. He's no longer a member of the Browns. So um, the fact that he is Miles Garrett, he was the number one overall pick and that, you know, he's accomplished what he's accomplished, had a lot to do with him being able to overcome something like that and be in this position again. So, um, you know, that plays into it, but I think that calmness probably comes too from the fact that he knows that, you know, this isn't, this, this didn't ruin his career. And, and now he's like put it behind him. And like you said, he can kind of move on, but, but I think, uh, having a lot of talent has a lot to do with the fact that he's able to be where he is today. And also credit to the Browns and, and Andrew Barry and, and the Haslam's for basically coming to miles and saying, look, you know, we don't care. We still believe in you. We believe you're a great player and we're going to make you It lasted for two weeks, but we're going to make you the highest paid defensive player in football. I mean, they, they didn't even ball once it was time to get that contract done, they get it done before the season starts. And it, it you know, that's got to help too, to know that your organization, your city, everybody has faith in you that you're going to, to reach this sky high ceiling that you can get to that, that hall of fame caliber career that, you know, again, he's really taken that next step this year. And, and he's showing that, you know, he can be that guy that changes football games over and over and over again. Yeah. You know, the other uh, component of this that I do think has been a factor is you know, Miles came out, you know, first in that, I mean, we knew that he suggested that there had been a racial slur. And then when he came out in the ESPN interview with, with Mina Kimes and actually said, you know, that Mason Rudolph called him the N-word, I think, um, I think that took the edge off of what he did for, for a lot of people. It didn't excuse it and he didn't want to be excused for it. Uh, but I do think that it sort of explained it a little bit for some people, even though, and we have to be very clear about this, Mason Rudolph vehemently denies saying that. Now, when I also, when I did the interview with Miles, he said he wants to clear the air with Mason Rudolph. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen. I even asked him this, how can you clear the air when you say that he called you that and he said he didn't. And he said, well, we can just agree to disagree. That's not going to happen. Okay. That, that is not going to happen. You, you don't, if, if, it's, if he doesn't feel that he said that, or he says he did not say that, and Miles said he did, I don't see any reconciliation coming whatsoever until they get some resolution on that. And I don't think we're ever really going to have re resolution on the he said, she said thing. But I do think that the racial slur allegation kind of gave it a little bit of a different spin. 
Yeah, I don't even think kind of. I, I think it did. <laughs> and, I, and I think it's a big reason why you had the organization, the head coach, the GM, the owners really come out in support of Miles after that because, you know, obviously he had spoken to them um, and he never meant, meant it to go public. And then it did after the hearing. Um, and, and I think that was, that was sort of the first indication that, you know, everybody kind of had the suspicion. Was something said? Did, did Mason say something? And then you started to hear the support that he was getting from people in the organization and you realized, no, maybe he did. All right, Mason Rudolph, the other guy involved in this, strictly from a football standpoint, uh, ended up losing his starting job, started one more game after that against Cincinnati, a game the Steelers barely won 16 to 10. He played again in week 16, but did not start. That was against the New York Jets. But Mason has sort of been relegated to being a backup the Steelers have Ben Roethlisberger back. I think Steelers fans um, were kind of hoping I, it was kind of funny. I went to Pittsburgh the week of that second Steelers game and uh, I, I left the facility that day. And I'm like, you know, I just want a little bit more. And I happened to see some Steelers fans across the street and I walked over and, and interviewed a few of them and every single one of them kind of joked with me. We, we kind of wish Mason Rudolph would have gotten suspended too. <laughs> I, think, I think with Rudolph, it, it sort of became apparent and it was becoming apparent that he's probably not the future quarterback for that organization. And he's really only started one game since now with big Ben back. Yeah. Um, it, again, I think it really takes the, uh, the, you know, the edge off of the story that he's not playing in this game. And I think that he was obviously very, very rattled by that incident. And I think it uh, was very difficult for him to play after that. I, I think that, uh, that whole thing was in his head and it impacted him, even though I don't think he would ever admit that. I don't think the Steelers would ever admit that. Uh, but I think that he just, you know, wasn't able to function. I mean, these are young quarterbacks, uh, you know, just really young starting out their careers and to have something like that happen to you. And also then to be accused of, of a racial slur, which can, you know, it can, you know, ruin a lot of parts of your life. Uh, I think it just, I, I just think it rattled him beyond repair last season. And he's probably working his way back from that probably still to this day. Well, those fans probably in a, in a roundabout way got what they wanted anyways, because next time the Browns <laughs> played the Steelers, uh, he was not the quarterback. It was yep. Duck Hodges yep. and they came out on top. So everything's worked out for, for them. And Duck Hodges now on the practice squad. That's, that's how much things have changed. Mason Rudolph is kind of the backup sort of out of the picture uh, Duck Hodges is on the practice squad, and the guy we really have to talk about in all of this, our favorite guy in the world to talk about, good old Freddie Kitchens. <laughs> he, he ended up in the spotlight after this game for a lot of reasons. Uh, I mean, I wrote about it after the game. You know, he got asked about it in the postgame presser and did not want to hear about it, but a lot of us hearkened back to how things went when the, the Browns held those joint practices against Indianapolis and how out of control the team was, the discipline issues. And then two weeks later, he shows up at a movie theater, sweaters just a little bit open when he takes a picture with the fan and, and is wearing the, the Pittsburgh started its shirt and the Steelers uh, certainly made a big deal out of it. And I'm sure it was all over the place in the Steelers facility during their walkthrough on Saturday and, and before the game. Had a little t-shirt war going on. Freddie Kitchens, now he's with the Giants, the tight ends coach. You want to talk about how far some people have fallen since then. Certainly Kitchens, uh, the, the one and done head coach, uh, has, has 
fallen away since that incident. Well, I do think that if Freddie Kitchens had run a, a more sound program, a more disciplined program, and was more in charge of those guys and kind of had everybody's psyche going in the right direction, the way that Kevin Stefanski does right now, I kind of don't think that that would have happened with Miles Garrett last year. I think he was frustrated. I think Miles, I can't remember uh, exactly, but he was in the midst of a, of a sack slump and he couldn't get that one that game either. And after starting out with, you know, his 10 in 10 games uh, or whatever, I think it was like five in the first two games, something like that. Uh, he kind of dropped off after that. And he was in the middle of a slump. And I think he was getting very, very frustrated uh, by the end of that game. You know, he just wanted to come out of there with a sack, darn it. And uh, he actually was penalized for that. Um, or he was fined for that particular play. But um but anyways, so um, I, I just think that I do attribute some of that to Freddie Kitchens just running a very dysfunctional program and players doing whatever they wanted. By the end of the season, we saw Jarvis Landry yelling at him on the sidelines. Well, the next time they played Pittsburgh. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it was a mess. And so I, you know, and then the, the whole t-shirt thing, I mean, that, that was just a total joke. And that was... Uh, just another nail in the coffin. And I think you could see by that point that it was over with a capital O. <laughs> yeah, that was, it was just a bad look for a coach who had started out, you know, with two and six. And even then they were under 500 and had a really uphill battle to, to, to grab a final playoff spot and all the issues they'd have, uh, they had on offense. I think it just, you're right. It was kind of just one more thing that, that steered the Haslam's I'm sure to, thinking that this this needed to change so yeah it was I can't imagine I mean who else does that when you have a losing record and <laughs> it was such a, a a lightning rod incident like that it just it was the wrong thing to do it was just a horrible look <laughs> it was it just came out of nowhere too it was like on a Friday night wasn't it and it just started to yep. pop up on on social media and there's Pittsburgh started at t-shirts from from the head coach you, you know it is kind of funny you bring up Miles kind of wanting that sack and this kind of goes hand in hand with another incident that happened with, with Kitchens much earlier in the season but it was one of those what is happening here moments when San Francisco was just blowing the Browns out Odell Beckham randomly walks out on the field and returns a punt and it was one of those what why are they doing this now why are they putting Odell out there and then you're wondering in that game why is Miles even out there and then we kind of watch this season with how, you know, I mean, there, there's times when the game is still on the line and they'll take miles out and let him catch his breath. Let, you know, they're very controlled with who's in the game and who's not. And I've got to imagine this coaching staff would have even in that situation said to miles, Hey, I know you don't have a sack yet. I know you really want one, but let's just pack it in. Let's take the win because that's what matters. And let's get to next week. Yeah. I mean, this coaching staff this year, they are adults. I mean, they, uh, they have a firm handle on these players. They're doing a great job with the personalities, some of the strong personalities that they have on this team. They're keeping Richard Higgins head in the game. They're keeping Odell uh, happy. They, you know, threw a, a streak there where he just wasn't getting much action. They, uh, they managed that part of it very well. But the other thing real quick about the t-shirt situation is I we remember. Can't get that <laughs> I, know, I can't get enough. At the beginning of that week, you guys remember, Freddie was the one that said, we're keeping it all about football this week. It's There's going to be nothing about, we are not going to have a, any distractions about this. 
We're not going to be talking about it. We're not focusing on it. And we're going to be very professional about it. And then the coach wore a Pittsburgh started Dick t-shirt. And that's all you needed to know about Freddie's 2019 season. Really, that summed it up right there, right on the t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. The, the other part of this too is, I, I was thinking about this today. This is sort of a culture test for the Browns. You know, obviously, look, Kevin Stefanski is not, not going to be sitting in that room next to these guys when they're on Zoom with us, you know, looking closely at them and saying, no, don't answer that question. Don't say this, don't say that. But I would imagine at some point on Wednesday, or maybe it was Tuesday or Monday, he said to these guys, listen, we're not, we're not getting into this. You know, we're, we're going to take this approach where it's this year, we're focused on going 1-0 every week. It's going to be an interesting culture test, I think, for Kevin Stefanski. And, you know, players are going to talk about it, I'm sure, when they get asked about it. But I'm going to guess that the goal is to keep things as muted as possible and keep things as focused on this week. So this is sort of a good test for, for this staff and, and how they kind of handle this week. Yeah, I, I think so. I definitely think so. And we already have heard from Mike Tomlin and he was asked about it. It was funny because I listened to his whole Zoom conference from Tuesday and it took until about, I don't know, it was like 17 or 18 minutes into the Zoom where somebody first asked him, hey, you're playing Miles for the first time. What, you know, what's your message to the team about that? And, and he, you know, he had a really good answer. He was like, you know, we're not going to get into the, uh, you know, that low hanging fruit reality TV talk about this week. We've got a big game there four and one, you know, there's a lot at stake here and he basically shut it down. And, you know, when your head coach does that, I think that will set the tone on over in Pittsburgh. And I think the same thing will happen here. Kevin Stefanski was asked about it on Monday in his press conference specifically. What about all the focus that there will be on miles this week? And he almost evaded the question. I mean, he didn't really specifically answer it. And I think, uh, I think that's how it's going to be. And I don't know whether he will verbalize that. Now, Tomlin's saying, I don't have to say anything to my team. You know, there's no message to, to be delivered. But, you know, will, will Kevin Stefanski feel the need to do that? I don't know if he will or not. But I think the tone has been set from him already. Like these guys know. Remember last year, Freddie used to always, he, first of all, he didn't think a leadership council was necessary. No, we don't need that. Uh, but he also used to say, hey, boys will be boys. They can say whatever they want as long as it doesn't you know, hurt the team. But there's a fine line, right, <laughs> between what is team protecting and what's not. Um, Kevin Stefanski, in no uncertain terms from day one, told this team, no outside noise, tone it down. Baker, for sure, tone it down. And they have followed suit. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if there was like a players type meeting about this just to remind everybody to keep their head on the game. And the leadership council obviously would, would take the lead on that. I mean, Miles could take the lead on that and just say, look, don't, you know, somebody might say something to me. Don't feel the need to, to retaliate on my behalf or something like that. You know, it's, I think the players need to, to make sure they talk amongst themselves and know how to react to that. But do we know how many fans can be there at this game? Do you know in Pittsburgh? I'm not it's sure. Not I, I it's in the fives. It's in the five. Okay. That, I think that'll help the situation a little bit. If this was a packed stadium, who knows? I mean, fans can be, you know, <laughs> boisterous and there's signs and there's that kind of add to the whole atmosphere. But I think not having so many fans there can maybe, 
have a calming effect in a way on, on some of this, uh, which could work out in, you know, in the Browns' favor. Um, but I don't, I mean, Miles, that wasn't the only personal foul Miles had last year. And I think this year, like you said earlier, it's kind of seems like he's a different guy. And, um, but, you know, having fewer fans there, I think will definitely, definitely help the situation. Yeah, he, he even mentioned that himself in, in that interview. He, he said it would be completely different if this was going to be a packed stadium. He knows he would be getting it from all over the place. I mean, 5,000 people are not going to be able to put a dent in him the way yeah. that whatever, 65 or 70,000 would have. There's one other point that I want to bring up about the whole Miles situation with um, just how he's relating to teammates. If you guys recall, and you do, that after right after the game, Baker Mayfield – uh, told Aaron Andrews on, on TV, you know, this was unacceptable behavior uh, by Miles, and he was very strong about that. And uh, he had, he got a talking to by some some of his teammates, and they kind of, you know, said, no, we, that's not how we operate. No, we stick together. We're a family. We're a team. And I think in the aftermath of that, I think that uh, Baker and Miles have gotten a lot closer. I don't think they were that close before that situation. I, I don't, I just didn't get the sense uh, that, that those guys were close at all. And, and now I see that, that they are. And, and I think that's great. They made a vow together that miles was going to take over his side of the ball and Baker was going to take over his side of the ball. And I think they had a meeting of the minds and I think it's helped a lot. Well, it's going to be interesting. I know there were other people certainly involved, you know, Larry Ogunjobi, uh, Pouncey, uh, a lot of people involved in, in that whole thing. David DeCastro, who, <laughs> might have helped Miles Garrett out a little bit at one point when, when somebody was coming at him. Um, so, you know, it, it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. And, you know, Scott, I, I actually, you mentioned the personal fouls thing, and I'm glad you brought that up because that's another way that Miles, I think, is different this year. He's putting a lot of pressure on the quarterback. He's in the backfield a lot. He's got a lot of opportunities to hit the quarterback, and we're not seeing those roughing plays. We're, we're not seeing the, the out-of-control play. Sometimes, look, a pass rusher is going to get those penalties. It's going to happen eventually this year for Miles. He's going to get a roughing, something like that. He'll probably get a fine. But we're not seeing it as out of control as it was uh, a year ago when, especially early in the season, he was just piling that stuff up. And he's rushing more from the left side. And when you're doing that, you're, you're looking at the, court, you know, the quarterback and see you coming and the ball's closer. And I think there's more of an emphasis on getting that ball more so than just hitting somebody and, and trying to get a sack is seems more involved. So then, you know, you're avoiding those, those late hits and, and, and the roughing things that, that were kind of plaguing him for a while. The other thing to, to, uh, to note about this game is uh, remember when miles was first drafted. And one of the first things that he said was that, uh, you know, they wanted to sack Ben Roethlisberger. And I can't remember the exact terminology, but he was coming for him or something like that. Chop him down, uh, I think it was. Yeah, he was going to chop down Ben Roethlisberger because, of course, everybody just chops down Ben Roethlisberger. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, so, uh, you know, I think that adds another storyline to this is that uh, Ben is back. Um, Miles, remember when he did, like, the office thing where he was uh, shredding the uh, Ben Roethlisberger photo? Uh, so, you know, I know that Ben is going to want to make sure that Miles – doesn't have a great game and so will the rest of you know his offensive linemen and uh you know Pouncey I think is a little banged up heading into this game but those offensive linemen you know this is a, this is going to be gut check time for them too uh so especially with what Miles has been able to do 
in these first five weeks. So I think that whole, you know, Ben versus Miles thing is going to be big this week. Four career sacks against the Steelers. And I, I still think there's probably a case to be made for a game this year, but probably still his best game in, in that tie against Pittsburgh um, when he got after Ben a lot in, in that game. Uh, all right. Well, that'll do it for this first half of the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. Stick around after the break. Uh, Terry Pluto will join us. Scott, Mary Kay, thanks a lot. We now welcome on Terry Pluto. Terry, how are you? I'm well, Dan. All right, real quickly before we get going, uh, since people are here to listen to you, I want to tell everyone about the Medicare Guide webinar on October 22nd at 2 p.m. that involves you. Uh, the webinar is presented by Cleveland.com and Medical Mutual and will help simplify the complex process of finding the right Medicare plan for your needs. Terry, together with our experts from Medical Mutual, Western Reserve Area Agency on Aging and Discount Drug Mart will guide you through the process and answer your most pressing questions. So just go to the Cleveland.com Facebook channel click on the Medicare event for more details and registration. So Terry, let's talk some football. The Browns. Way, you know how this happened, how I ended up being I, drafted for this. I do. I want to get the inside story. They're looking around for somebody who's actually on Medicare. That <laughs> <laughs> was not it. Did, did they come to you first or were, were you I like understand I was a first round draft pick. I don't <laughs> think the list was real long. I don't, you know, they always talk about the draft board. <laughs> I think this is something you could have fit on one of those little sticky pads. But anyway, so <laughs> actually I, I will say this before we go, having navigated Medicare the first time to get coverage, you do need help. So I'll be, I figured I'd learn something in the process. Yeah, there you go. All right. So, uh, the Browns are four and one. Yes. Really strange thing to say. Uh, first time since 1994. And let's just start with Kevin Stefanski because, uh, you know, I'm kind of slowly working through rewatching, um, rewatching the game here. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just so hard to not be impressed with, with everything he's done. Not just, not just with the play calling, but just his approach to the game. You know, we talk about those four minute drives uh, you know, I just finished watching a drive that spanned the third and fourth quarter where the Browns really ate some clock and, and changed field position. It was right before the safety. Mm -hmm. His decision-making, his calm, you just see it all over the field with, with this football team. And I also think you see it in the discipline. I thought what they had two penalties, and I think they had yeah. five the previous game. Because, um, frankly, you could look calm and under control, but if your team doesn't look that way, then what good is it? then it looks like you're boring and nobody's listening to you. So clearly there's a lot of fiber and maybe fire even behind this guy that we don't see that is able to make sure that, you know, they're doing stuff the way they're supposed to do. And Dan, when you think about it, he using more kind of option and misdirection stuff that could lead to all those uh, illegal formations, illegal motions, illegal, illegal pre-snap garbage. And um, they've not had that. And they've been like, for example, they dropped Chris Hubbard in two different spots on the line. Sometimes that could mess up your chemistry. It hasn't. Uh, and finally, I don't know what you think, but what I notice him more than most Browns coaches is he's quick to praise his position coaches or something. You know, like, well, yeah. Stump Mitchell really got Dearness Johnson ready to go. Or Bill Callahan, he, come, he came up with a great running game plan, you know, or Joe Woods has been able to, uh, in that case, it's coordinator, been able to, uh, you know, fill in the gaps. I mean, you, you, he mentions different people all the time. 
yeah, that that's something that has stood out to me, and and he's also very quick to credit his players, yes, um, and and take blame when things go wrong, uh, you know, and and look, we've seen offensive head coaches here before, over and over again, who come in and if a play doesn't work, they point to the execution or they point to something that a player did wrong, uh, maybe if they do it without naming the player, but you or don't else hear, you don't hear that a lot. Go, well, it's on me, whatever he does. Well, it's on me, you know, when he keeps saying, well, it's my fault, it's on me, actually it's just the throwaway line it's not right. doesn't has no meaning to it you, you but, start to crack that code a little bit <laughs> yeah whereas i think when uh, he talked about in the second half he, he could have done a better job play calling i'm sure he didn't like some of the throws baker made but he probably just like you said you know you go back and look at the film and go you know we probably should have ran it a little more there you know that kind of thing he i think he's self-critical too in a good way the other thing i really liked sunday was uh you know, obviously, look, Indianapolis was selling out on the run. I mean, there was mm -hmm. not a lot of running room there. They, they changed things around in the first half and, and went to the air a lot more. But then in the second half, they did find some things out. You know, Kareem Hunt got going a little bit in the second half. And, and I am curious to see how they sort of deploy Hunt, um, you know, with Chubb out. Because we did see some different things. You know, we saw a little, we saw an option play. Um, mm -hmm. We saw Hunt had a really nice run out of the shotgun. Just some things that maybe aren't strengths of Nick Chubb. Now Nick Chubb is a better runner, but you can also do different things with Kareem Hunt because he's so versatile. You, I know you're his agent, so you're <laughs> right. But actually you're right. Uh, but I will say this, you know, they missed Nick Chubb in that game because Chubb can get you those really hard yards. Uh, and that's not to, again, negate what the other two guys did. I mean, for a while, Dearness Johnson went back to being Dearness Johnson, you right. know, one yard minus two, but then he broke off the 28 yarder. Uh, and I said, that was, and that was a break in. And you notice he didn't pull Dearness and say, maybe go to Hillier towards the end of the game, just to try somebody else. I think he wanted to see if Dearness could get something going like he did the week before. Um, if you think about it, now granted they're four and one, but still coaches, some coaches like to tinker a little more with kind of the guys on the edge of playing or not playing. Generally, if it's working, I think he just stays with it. Just like, you know, Kaderil Hodge, he was playing him until he got hurt. Now, of course, my guy, yeah, my going to bring him Trevor up. He's got <laughs> in there. So we'll see what happens coming forward. But I love the way he praised Richard about being a consummate pro and preparing on a scout team all that kind of stuff uh, was good to hear. But I think it says something too, when those guys, you know, Chris Hubbard goes in and plays guard, mm -hmm. um, something he hasn't done very often in his career. Uh, when um, Rashard Higgins inactive for two games comes out has a big touchdown catch has a first down catch, you know, David Njoku wasn't super involved, but he had a third down catch uh, to convert a first down in the second half. I mean, these guys that, you know, maybe for different reasons, haven't been playing. Njoku was hurt. Higgins just lost the numbers game. For those guys to be ready and come in, Sheldrick Redwine, another guy. I, I think that probably says something about the coaching too, that those guys were ready and were able to contribute. I want to say something about Andrew Barry on Chris Hubbard, because remember when Barry took over and Hubbard had that big contract number, I forget, $8 million or whatever it was. And you're going, well, he, and besides, that's Dorsey's guy, right? You know how it right. is here. You get rid of the other guys' guys, you bring in your own. And, um, and he did it also with Olivia Vernon. He said, well, these guys still have some value to them, but let's see if we can get them at a lower number rather than just going to get somebody else. And Hubbard has turned out to be a critical one that they've kept. 
because of his versatility. And, you know, he's sort of back, Hubbard is back to the type of role he had with the Steelers, where he was a, a utility man, played more tackle than, than guard and everything. But that's why I liked him in Pittsburgh, because he could uh, handle different positions. Yeah, and, and that was such a really kind of a shrewd move by Barry to, to redo yeah. that contract and keep him around, because I don't know if, I mean, I know I certainly didn't. I doubt a lot of people were looking at Chris Hubbard and thinking, okay, this yeah, guy can play, play guard, this guy can play center. You know, let's use him as our sixth offensive lineman. And also to be able to convince Hubbard that, look, we're really going to whack your pay, uh, but we do want you and we'll pay you this. Uh, so you have to sell it. And yet, and, and as they, um, Stefanski has said, you have to have the right, you know, the guy with the right attitude because you've talked about how Hubbard's under leadership committees and the coaches really did like him. Uh, Barry told me that a while, quite a while ago when I had one of the interviews with him for the, uh, for the paper, he said that uh, they took into consideration a lot of, you know, what the, the what the previous coaching staff said, just because some of those guys got fired or whatever, they still could be right on some people. Right. <laughs> I mean, there was, there was talent on this roster. We all knew there was talent yeah. on the roster. So um, it was a matter of kind of deciding who you wanted to keep and, and who you could find a role for, I, I guess. Shelter credit. And I mean, Redline is another guy exactly like that. And who wanted to stay. And right. like he brought back Higgins. Remember that? He, he'd alter, and he brought back Najoku. Now, Najoku, was, he was part of the people that drafted in the first place. So was Higgins. But they had kind of followed in the area that like business would call the distressed properties. I mean, <laughs> you know, this is like, hey, whatever this, whatever this house was, it looks to me like there's some plumbing problems and uh, we're not so sure the, uh, the electricity is going to work either with them. You know, whereas do they have enough juice to still play effectively in the NFL? And so they brought them back. And uh, that's a good thing. I, I liked how they did that. Really, the only offseason move I disagree with, I would have kept uh, uh, Schobert even though the number was a little high, but the rest, I can't sit there and go, gee, they should have did this, or I don't know why they did that. Or, you know, Vernon was iffy with me bringing him back just because of the injury history, but, um, but they had, you know, they had salary cap room. They, they got him a lower number. Um, I, is he supposed to be healthy or what's going on with him? Uh, who is it? Vernon? Vernon? Yeah. I mean, I think he's healthy <laughs> or as healthy as he's going to be. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and he did, he did some, decent things on Sunday. He wasn't all over the place, but he was in on the safety. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he was in on that play, but I know there was another play that he was in on as well. Um, you know, he had his moments, but yeah. I, th I think with Vernon, you're just kind of trying to get what you can out of him this year and then figure out that position later. Yes. Yes. Yeah. This is definitely stopgap. What else did you see that struck you when you were looking at the film? I, I really liked Ronnie Harrison. Not okay. just because of the pick six, mm -hmm. but you know he almost had another interception. He was playing down a lot, uh, kind of a third linebacker at times, playing some nickel. Really? Okay. Well, was he supposed to be? He's supposed to be a good tackler, isn't he? Yeah, I, I, I just really like. You know, without really digging in and you know <laughs> breaking down film, I, I just every now and again I'd see thirty-three, and I and I just kind of liked how they were using him mm -hmm. and what he could do. Um, maybe they their hand kind of got forced and sometimes that's how football works, right? They're, the coaching staff can be hesitant to throw a guy out there and then they have to, and he ends up playing really well. I mean, you hate to say, you, you don't know who's going to be hauled off on a card. I mean, there was Dak Prescott. Right. Um, I mean, you, you just don't know. And that's why I know one of the reasons that uh, Kevin Stefanski wanted Case Keenum besides the 
obvious one of the fact that Keen, he had Keenum before, Keenum knows the offense, is that he's also been in situations where he went through quarterbacks getting hurt. Uh, one year there, they started with uh, Teddy Bridgewater, and that's when his knee collapsed in right. like a, a mini camp or something. And then they went to uh, Sam Bradford. He played like two games, and that was the end of him. And that was the Case Keenum breakthrough year. He was the third guy. And so he's had to – and I know there's some other examples. I was kind of looking with the Vikings too where uh, it seemed like they went through a number of quarterbacks. So I think he wasn't going to be a guy say, you know, I'm fine with Garrett Gilbert. You know, who the, I, I know Dallas just picked him up. But I think he wanted a real guy behind there because you lose your quarterback in the third game of the year like – they happen in Minnesota and you don't have somebody like Case Keenum or to put in and remember when uh, I remember when Bridgewater went to uh, New Orleans a couple years ago maybe it was last year I think it was and yeah. I'll go well why is he going there and why are they signing him and that but remember Breeze got hurt in the middle of the year and I think Teddy went five and oh or something like that as a starter so you save your seasons if you can get a guy like that with the right attitude and skill set uh, so I think that was a big thing too it's not the Wisher Neal and Baker, but I, I think it's how they looked at it. The same thing with like Chris Hubbard, with, with Higgins. You know, these guys have started in the past. In other words, it was in their mind. And so if we could have them around, even if they're not starting, even the Joku, um, it, you know, the old thing, it gives depth as long as they're willing to get them to uh, buy into their role. Right. You know, the other thing, too, to go to go back to the coaching, and this this stood out to me in this game in particular, is the, the way they use those you know, Kevin Stefanski loves those big formations. Yeah. But the way they use them. So they'll have three tight ends on the field, but they'll spread it out. You know, mm -hmm. At least one play where they emptied out the backfield. And, uh, you know, they did that with two tight ends, you know, some 12 personnel, you spread that out and you end up with a linebacker on Odell Beckham, or that's sort of what happened with Rashard Higgins on the touchdown. They just couldn't get somebody to cover him. And yep. Baker saw it quickly, got it to him because they were so concerned with the running back split out wide, they had to adjust. Um, it, it's little things like that where, you know, maybe you're not throwing five wide receivers out there, but you're getting creative and, and putting pressure on the defense with all your tight ends, all your running backs, and all those, those guys that Kevin Stefanski loves to use. What did you see in the second half of Baker? Um, you know, he just missed some throws, <laughs> Yeah, honestly. And, and Jarvis didn't help. You know, the first drop, especially, that was a yeah. first down. That was an easy first down. And Is he, he all right? Because, you know, remember, he crawled off the – he had 80 yards rece receiving, I think, by the middle of the second quarter. And he had crawled off the field. And, that, and then suddenly, he was sort of a non-factor. And then he had two easy drops. He, I looked it up. He had no drops all year until that game. Yeah, and, you know, that injury happened so early. I, yeah. He was still productive after he crawled off. Um, I, I don't know. I, I actually think – Indianapolis was kind of getting after him a little bit. There were mm -hmm. a couple moments where, and I saw this in real time and I saw a couple more, you know, you know, they caught it on camera. A couple kind of fighting times. after was, the play. I saw yeah. He was kind of getting into it, getting face mask to face mask with some guys. Yeah. And I, I just wonder if they were chirping at him a little bit, trying to get him off his game a little, mm -hmm. which might've worked. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing with, with Jarvis, you know, he always talks about the Joe Thomas thing, just like we know, we never knew all what Thomas, even to this day, played through. And for Jarvis right. to play 100, I think it's 101 straight games now, um, we don't know what he's playing through. Uh, we just know he plays. So, 
and it was nice. We we had now Odell got to throw his pass, so he should be happy. <laughs> That's like, and he got a, he got another end around, another handoff, yeah. got a running play. That's just going to be a tradition for him, I think. Well, that's fine. I mean, there's nothing. We've seen uh, other other teams do it. If the guy's really good running the ball, well, you could handle the ball. I mean, what's the difference between having Odell run around and or the earnest runoff tackle? I think I might even go with Odell on that one to see what happens. Yeah, why why not? I mean, you mentioned Dearness was not. You know, the play he broke was just a really well-executed play. Yeah. He had the blocking in front of him. And that's where you really miss Nick Chubb, right? Because normally Chubb's your one, Hunt's your two. So when you got that number two in there, it's Kareem Hunt breaking tackles and making guys miss instead of Dearness Johnson. Um, That's, I think the depth is where, you know, you really miss Nick Chubb in this game and and moving forward. I mean, what what did you think of Baker, especially in that second half? I thought he lost his confidence again. You know, how we've seen that come and go. And, the, you know, I wrote a long Sunday piece, you know, can we have a rational discussion about Baker? Mm-hmm. And that is where I'll go back to the dis- distressed property thing. The assumption on some people in the media and fans is that, like, Baker had this great year last year. And he should be playing because he was the number one pick, you know, up to the standard. Or maybe they're flashing back to 18. But there were more reasons than Freddie Kitchens that he just he, – Dan, you know, it's statistically, a case could be made. He was the worst quarterback in the NFL who started, if not in the bottom three. I mean, there were concerning things last year. Yeah. I mean, the, the one that really stood out to me last year was, you know, PFF keeps those you know, under pressure and kept clean yeah. stats. And he was not good last year when he was kept clean. No, he wasn't. And then accuracy – and accuracy high, you know, that's always an issue. And the interception. So um, that's why they're trying to get him to do work in, in a system that works for him. And it's not about how many yards, but they did have to let him loose in the first half. And it did work for quite a while. Uh, but the second half, it seemed like he got a little rattled. He, he was leaving the pocket early, I thought. Because sometimes to me, I can't tell whether he can't. Is he can't see, Dan? Can you tell? And that's why he's bolting out of there or what? It's really hard to, it's so hard to tell whether mm-hmm. it's, you know, I mean, I just hate to to chalk it up to, well, he can't see, you know? Yeah. Because it, like, it, it didn't seem like it was a problem in 2018. Yeah. In fact, I remember one time Dorsey, John Dorsey showed me, he said, early on, I said, you know, when I saw him, I thought this guy sort of has happy feet or whatever. And Dorsey said, what he's really doing, if you watch him, he's moving laterally off and and he's creating a passing lane. In other words, somewhere where he could see, but he wasn't bolting out of the pocket. He was just maybe moving, you know, four feet to his right or left. But I haven't seen that. I see suddenly just, he's gone. You know, he's out of there. I I don't know if that's residual from the year before with the line, but there's reasons to trust the line now. Right. And, you know, you hear it when you watch broadcasts, you'll hear these analysts say, climb the pocket, right? Yeah. And you don't see him do that very often. You see him drop, and then if it's not there, he kind of gets out. He has a certain comfort level thrown off the run. If I, I, I only looked at the play once. I bet you looked at it a couple times. The, the touchdown to uh, Kareem in the end zone where yes. uh, what he wanted to do was covered, and then he rolled. That was a heck of a throw off the run. In oh, yeah. That was really good. And he does that about as well as anybody. I mean, you still see throws that are like, wow, 
I, I can't believe there was one. I, I wish I could remember exactly when it was, but um, his arm angle and the zip he put on the football, and it was really kind of a nondescript play. It was like a second mm. down play or something like yeah. that. Um, but you, you kind of catch it when you watch this arm angle and the zip he puts on it. It's just, whoa. Yeah, you know, it's a flashback to 2018, and, and you mm-hmm. realize that he, he has that ability. And I, I'm, I mean, maybe after what happened last year, we need to be really careful to not put him in that. You know, I mean, if you're expecting him to be Patrick Mahomes, it's not going to happen. At least, let, especially let, not let this year. Him, let, this guy knows how to build up quarterbacks. Right. He's a quarterback builder, you know, a quarterback whisperer, as they like to say. But part, <laughs> I would say builder because the offensive line and the system is a foundation, you know, and this is how we're going to play. We're going to run. We're going to zone block. We're going to throw to tight ends. We're going to roll you out sometimes. And this is how we're going to do it. And the, the, the more you do this, the better you'll be, the better you will feel about yourself. And then we'll say, well, there's going to be a game where he's going to have to win it. Well, fine. Let's wait for the game and see what happens. In the meantime, the old, they always say stack up one good play after another, one good game after another. And that's what I, I want to see. What would have worried me, Dan, is in the first five games in this system, if we're still seeing Baker throwing picks all over the place and, you know, that his, he was still completing 57% of his passes instead of in the sixties. And now he's had a couple of balls that also could have been intercepted, but that's generally the case too. And it kind of evens out because sometimes there'll be a ball right off the receiver's hands that gets picked off. You know, at the end of the year, they always say, the Bill Parcells things, you know, after 16 games, that's your record, you know, the games you should have won a lot. I'll say the same thing after, you know, 12 or 14 games for a quarterback. If you threw 20 interceptions, you threw 20 interceptions, you know, you probably got away with a couple and you probably had a couple that uh, the receivers should have caught. Yeah. And I'm looking it up because I referenced it. um, Kept clean this season, uh, according to PFF. I mean, he's right in the middle. He's he's 15 And, and last year, he was at the bottom. That's uh, that's according to quarterback rating. I mean, before you get to the top, when you're at the bottom, you kind of really got to reach the middle. I mean, this is like right. basic stuff, but it, that's where I'm going with the fans. You know, I'll go back to the distressed property thing. I mean, he had to rip up the basement, you know, put that in, lay the floor. Now they're putting up some walls. And, you know, we're not even talking about the attic and the, the second floor yet. That's, and again, Kevin is brought in to do this. The Shanahan system, you know, that goes all the way back to Mike Shanahan was always designed for quarterbacks like that to build up things around them. And I also think there is a certain um, mental relief when every game a quarterback goes out there and doesn't think the whole thing's on my shoulders. That, and when you're, I mean, let's be honest that when you're four and one, yeah. When, when you started two and six and you're not playing very well, that's, that's a weight. Mm-hmm. And now and you have a feeling your coach can't help you out of it. Yeah. And it's, be, it's better to learn by winning. <laughs> so now yeah. you can go back and look at that second half and say, okay, we got to clean this up, clean this up, clean this up, but we won the game and we're four and one. And you also could say, well, look at these good throws in the first half. Right. So what happened, Baker? You, you know, you tell me. Here's first half. Here's second half. Because so it's not like, gee, Baker, you really stink, and look at you couldn't make a good throw. Yeah, you know, that that's not the stuff to do. And I also think, you know, Stefanski knows 
that for behind Baker's bluster and all this stuff is a guy that's still dealing with his confidence and a little insecurity. Yeah, I think so. Well, look, this week it's Pittsburgh. Um, obviously, Miles Garrett is, is going to be one of the stories, but uh, Baker going to Pittsburgh and trying to, to take down the Steelers is certainly uh, another one of those storylines to watch. We keep talking about tests. I thought the Colts was probably the biggest sure. test of the season, and, and now it's, it's on to Pittsburgh. See what you think. I mean, Baltimore, you know, that was like, that was like just, hey, go in there and get, get your head beat in. That, that, right. that game was set up for that. <laughs> but then, uh, you know, I thought Cincinnati was the worst team they played. And I thought Washington was the second worst team. Now, I think Cincinnati's passing Washington because they've gone into – Washington's gone a lot of disarray. And then I thought Dallas was better than those other two. And I thought Indianapolis was better than Dallas. So it's almost like they're climbing this ladder one step at a time. The, the, the opposition is getting um, – you know, getting harder. Now, of course, Pittsburgh is right. I put them right up there with a healthy Ben, right up there with Baltimore. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. And this is what you want. You want to be able to keep testing this team out and testing this coaching staff out and, you know, see how they deal with some adversity. Right. You know, all and, of that and Dan, I don't know about you, how you feel. I mean, I would, I don't want to go see them lose 38 to six, like they did in Baltimore, <laughs> but if they go out and they get beat in Pittsburgh and they play a reasonable game, I'm like, okay, now let's see how the the coaching staff and players respond to that like they did after Baltimore because I had somebody roll on top of the Browns tell me that they were really, we talked about Stefanski, they were very watching him closely, how emotionally and everything he reacted to that spanking in Baltimore and how he would be able to get them ready in three, basically they had three days to get ready for the Bengals. Right. And they were able to do that. And they came out. And you know what he did? He just doubled down on the things he was supposed to do in that game, to run the ball and all that stuff. And um, meanwhile, I mean, Joe Woods has really had to scramble to try to figure out who to put where with his defense. But see, that's the other thing. I think the defense is, um, it's not regressed in any way. And it was a big step forward against the Colts. But even in those games, right, where they gave up the Dallas they were out there a long time with, yeah. with them. And um, so I'm, you know, and the defense at least is now you see what they want to do. They want to, they want to force turnovers and they want to pressure the quarterback and not make you say every team wants to do that, but they actually have some guys that could do that. That's what helps. Yeah. It's, it's basically what the front four can do. Yeah. And, and I hate relying on turnovers because turnovers are very, you know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of luck in turnovers. Uh, but you've got to do what you have to do, you know? And, and the good thing is they've, for the most part, been able to turn those turnovers into points. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm anxious to see what they do at Pittsburgh. Look, it's just so Did anybody have them at four and one. There's no way. There's no, no way anyone realistically no. had them. at four. No, 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 there isn't. And so we have to give them credit for that. And we'll go back to, it's almost like we've thrown out the no mini camps and no training camp and no preseason games. See, I thought it, they would be at this point two and two, or maybe even two and three when it first started, depending yeah. upon how things went. Cause I just felt there, it was going to be rocky early because he didn't have time to get the team ready. And that the first four games might be like your preseason games only your regulars are playing, but it's like they had one preseason game and then here we go, you know, Baltimore was like 
that was that was just welcome to the NFL for yeah, a while. Just get out there and break a sweat, and we'll see yeah, you on Thursday. Was, just get pounded, you know, be the Washington Generals or something. But then all of a sudden, it's like, okay, go on there, and they won that shootout with Cincinnati. Um, and then they had that game at Washington. Remember, they were up seventeen to seven. Then they're down twenty to seventeen, going the fourth quarter, and I'm thinking, oh, they're going to blow this thing. And then they, I think they scored the last seventeen points in that game. Yeah. And then, and Dallas, I mean, who knew what was going to happen there? Or there's going to be a lot of points scored. And, and the, you know, the nice thing to see is these last two weeks, they've figured out a way to attack teams effectively, right? They knew that they had to score a ton of points against Dallas. So they went out and they did it. Yeah. And, and they knew that Indianapolis was not going to let them run the football. So they threw what 28 times in the first half. Um, you know, again, like, I guess that kind of goes back to the point we started off with when it, when it comes to coaching. Yeah. And then the main thing, then the second half, he did, uh, try to take the uh, pressure off of Baker some and run it. And I, when they got the ball with, uh, I think it was 245 left and they're on their own 35 in the game. And then I'm like, all right, this is where you got to run it. And Kareem, your guy, rips off a 10 yard <laughs> run. Longest right. run of the game for him, by the way. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they had the couple of runs there and then bang, they hit for 28 yards with the earnest. And you know what you saw? The offensive line finally wearing those guys down a little bit. But the only yeah. way that happens is if you put the offensive line in position to keep doing their run blocking. You can't just throw it three times, run it once, throw it twice, run it once. They don't get any. I remember Joe Thomas was telling me this whole thing about how you get your rhythm in the line. And he said, when we, they get two or three running calls in a row and you get a little yardage, it goes, then even if you lose a yard or whatever, you still feel it's almost like you're building up this momentum. Uh, I know nothing about offensive line points. So that's why when anybody tells me something like that, and um, it just makes sense, though. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, you get that key block from your guy, Richard. Yeah. So it's just every, everybody contributing. Again, I was happy for him. I just remember the first thing he ever told me, Richard, what kind of receiver are you? And he says, I'm the catch the ball kind of receiver. <laughs> And that's exactly the kind of receiver that you heard him like, which all I've right. never heard before in all those years. <laughs> but it, it, it takes you because, and you know, he's also the guy that was never fast enough and had one division one offer, Colorado State, which came when they uh, had a coaching change there and somebody knew somebody and the, the assistant coach from Colorado State scouted him in a basketball game because the new coaching staff came in so late <laughs> they had some old film of him or whatever school was down in texas he watched him play basketball and came up to him after the game and said uh, would you be interested in going to colorado state to play receiver <laughs> he has a, said at that point he was interested in like anything right right all right well that'll do it for uh this edition of the orange and brown talk podcast make sure you check out football insider go to cleveland.com slash browns there's a big blue banner at the top of the page you can click on to get all the info about that terry thanks for the time thanks a lot dan